0: Good morning, it's great to be with you here in, uh, I see uh, the the purple banners means it's Lent but it is a Sunday in Lent and not a Sunday of Lent, there are no Sundays of Lent because Lent is a fasting time and we do not fast traditionally, we do not fast on Sundays and there's a good reason for that. That is because once upon a time, something very significant happened on a Sunday. Something so great and powerful that it is the central thing for which we come together for worship every week. It is the fact of all facts in all of history that must be remembered. Without this fact, there is no Christianity. Without this fact, there is no gospel. And the fact is that the king of the universe, who died for our sins, was raised from the dead on a Sunday. That fact is a fact that God has woven into the fabric of what he has done throughout history. And it is a fact that empowers the kind of faith that Abraham had. We read in two passages this morning, in in Genesis 17 and in, in Romans 4, about the faith of Abraham. And I want to point out that the faith of Abraham is great. But the faith of Abraham is great not because Abraham is great, but because the object of Abraham's faith is great. Abraham's faith is in a God who is able to Give life to the dead, and call into existence things that do not exist. That is why Abraham's faith is great. I want to reread Romans four, a bit of the section, not the whole section, but some of the passage to you. And I want to uh, I want to point out that there's the, the I want to point out in preview. A couple of things that I want to focus on, and the one thing especially is that the power of God is great, and that is the focus of our hope. I also want to point out that this passage says some things that, um, upon the first hearing, I think can make us wobble a little bit. Abraham's faith was unflinching. He was so great at being faithful. And uh, as, as I read that, I think, wow, that's a, that's a high bar to set. And I want you to hear it and ask the questions, is that what it's saying? Is that what the Bible tells us about Abraham? And what does Paul mean when we look at that? I'm also grateful that uh, Jonathan read the, uh, the Hebrews passage about uh, Abraham and Sarah's faith in his prayer this morning. It uh, was helpful and fitting because that is the same thing that we are focusing on, and I, so I want to focus on these verses especially chapter 4 today, especially chapter 4 verse 17, and Genesis 17 verse 17, I believe. If I need to, I'll correct that in a bit. Let me reread this uh, section to keep it fresh on our minds. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence it is the adherence of the law. I'm sorry, I didn't bring my glasses this morning. I apologize. Um, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs. Thank you. The, that is so much better. <laughs> I can see every jot and every tittle. Was... All right. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. This is not an official reading. of the, This is not the worship reading. I feel free to stop in the middle of it and comment. You notice there that, as I said earlier, without, without a resurrection, there's no point to Christianity. Paul says this over and over. He makes, takes pains to tell us that if there is no resurrection, there, we are most of all to be pitied in the world. We are without hope in the world. This here says the same thing. If the promise of God's inheritance is to come through any means other than the power of God, then the promise is null and void. It is, not, it is given to people who, are, who were the adherents of the law, and he doesn't mean those who keep the law perfectly without sin. He means the Jews, as opposed to those who did not have the law. So, if it were, though, to come determined by being Jewish... And therefore, by keeping the law, which itself could not be done, having been weakened through the flesh, then the promise itself would be null and void. There's no point to expecting hope from God if there's some way that you have to perform at some level to get there to make it happen. For the law brings wrath, verse 15, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is, you can't break a law that isn't there. That is why it depends on faith, the reception of God's inheritance, as we would tend to say it in our day, salvation, the hope of salvation, depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Abraham, who it says, is the father of us all. Uh, Paul tells us a lot of stuff. And he does so with a lot of words. And Paul sometimes writes some convoluted sentences. And that is what the Holy Spirit wanted. But it takes some untying of his sentences sometimes because he likes to stop in the middle of a thought and give you another one and then go back to saying what he was saying so he has an insertion in his own sentence here as it is written i have made you the father of many nations and then he it says in the presence of god and this is a this in the presence of god doesn't make any sense on its own unless you back up and take the insertion out it says Abraham, who is the father of us all in the presence of God. And in the presence of God is a phrase that usually in the New Testament is translated in the sight of God. This is a a construction that actually indicates when there's a judge and someone comes to stand before him for judgment. They stand up in in opposite position to him, in his face. Uh, And so that's how the term is usually used. The term is usually used to say, when you stand before God, his judgment of who you are is this. So, according to God, in his judgment, we, Abraham is our father. In God's sight, you are children of Abraham. And who is this God and what did this Abraham think about this God? He goes on to say, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. And I think uh, we see that there in the storyline, we're going to talk about it in a minute, God told him something, and he had hope. And then it delayed. And then God came and told him something again, and he hoped again. And he hoped again, and he hoped again. again. This is the pattern of Abraham's faith, is one that despite obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, and great length of delayed time between when it was promised and when Abraham saw sight, ...of the promise coming to him. He believed over and over again... ...and he worshipped the same God faithfully... ...despite that God telling him... ...I'm giving you something. Now wait. Now wait. And I think that's the character of Abraham's faith... ...that Paul is going to talk about in a second. In hope he believed against hope. Hope time after time. That he should become the father of many nations... ...as he had been told... So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. Now I want to try to read this as troublingly as possible. I'm going to try to give you the sense of what you might worry about. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I'll go back and comment on that in a minute. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Alright, so I want to I comment on this, especially... Uh, I feel that this is the right thing to do. I, I spent t- so much time with Genesis 17. My intention was, we're having a sermon on Genesis 17. But as I spent time talking with uh, with my family about the passage, what they wanted to hear about was, why did it say Abraham's faith was unwavering, unflinching, perfect faith? Um, and, And I think that that is the kind of thing that once you get it under your skin like a splinter, there's nothing else you can think about. Uh, When you hear, when I I would be wanting to tell you, it's great, God has power, God is able to save us, but all you can think about is my faith is not like that guy's faith. I guess I don't get the promise. And so that's why I uh, I want to spend some time dispelling that so that we can talk about the uh, valuable part of God's power. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to wait for me to dispel those troubling parts at the end because that's the order I've written this in and I can't... It would be better for me to talk first about uh, the power of God in... uh, the power of God in resurrection... I want to point out, first of all, that God's gospel, this passage says, was the same. When God preached to Abraham, he preached to him a very similar thing to believe in that he asks us to believe in. What is it, first of all, in case there is someone here who is, not completely familiar with what the Bible teaches and what Christianity teaches. What is it that we are to believe? We are to believe that Jesus who was God, who lived a perfect sinless life, died to pay for the sins of the world, and Jesus was put to death on a cross, and on the third day Jesus by the power of God was raised again to life. He took the sins down to the grave and he left them there. He was raised without them, and since we believe in him, we can have that same new, real, physical life forever through his resurrection. And we believe that. We believe in this actual miracle. Jesus was raised from the dead. If someone says that's an absurd thing to believe, people don't rise from the dead, we say, I know. That's why it's it ha- takes God's power. It's not something we can do. Human bodies don't come back to life after death. God's power, though, can do what our power cannot. And this passage points out that Abraham was asked to believe something very similar. It says... This was not written for our sake alone, but in verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us. We will be counted righteous for belief. We who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He's raised. To vindicate us as people who are forgivable. He has defeated all the problem that God had with us. Our sin, our separation, Jesus has paid for it and it is over because he is raised from the dead. We are vindicated not because we are good, but because he is good and he has proven himself the victor. We must believe in a miracle and it says that Abraham... It said, believed. I, I can't do it without the classes. It says that Abraham. Uh, I'm sorry. It says that he we have a faith like Abraham's, not only in the in the fact that we have faith as opposed to works, but also in the content. Abraham believed that God, in verse 17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Abraham specifically had a faith in a resurrecting power of God. There's do you know what we tend to call the, the, the first exposition of the gospel in the Bible? What is the place that we call the, the first gospel? There's actually a technical term for it in Greek. It's the Proto-Evangelion. The first preaching of the gospel is in Genesis 3, in the passage with the serpent and Adam and Eve. As soon as Adam and Eve have sinned, God had told them, The day that you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. And that day he told them, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. There is a promise that the evil that brought sin into the world would be defeated by God's plan through the child of Adam and Eve, specifically the child of Eve. That is coming. There's a future time when one of her descendants will crush your head. And Adam and Eve's sin was taken care of. They were covered with animal skins. An animal did have to die that day to cover up their sins. They were given coverings of animal skins. So that they could have restored fellowship with God. So as early as the very first event story between God and people, there is sin. And as soon as sin happens, God says, there is death. There is a sacrifice that covers sins. And I promise that you are going to have a defeat of evil through your progeny. And I have restored relationship between me and you. So, though I told you the truth that you would die, I have restored things. And so, even there, there is a sense that they died and were resurrected already. They were restored to God through God's power and not through their power. Um, A a little later in the the book of Genesis, let's skip past Abraham because we're going to focus on him. A little later in Genesis, we have... The whole last fourth of the book of Genesis is focused on on Joseph. And what, what happens in the story of Joseph? Joseph's brothers throw him into Sheol, right? They throw him into a pit. They throw him into a grave. And then after he waits in this grave, he gets brought back up out of the grave again and sold to Midianites. And then they take him to Egypt and he gains in power and then he gets in trouble, not by his own fault. He is innocent, but he gets in trouble and is sent back into the pit again, into prison. And he rises back out of it in order to become king of the whole land and to draw all the nations to himself. He has the people from other even foreign lands coming to him for his, his uh, he's second only to Pharaoh. But he's the one actually doing the operational business of the kingdom. So we have a story in which one of Adam and Eve's sons, one of Abraham's sons, is given to death and brought back to life and then is raised up to being king and draws all the nations to himself. This is the same picture all throughout the Bible. It goes, this kind of a thing happens over and over even in the small sense in which David was rejected by his brothers and later became their king and was able to be the leader who provided them uh, God's blessings. Abraham has a picture of resurrection in his story over and over. Paul said that his body was as good as dead, for he was a 100 years old. The Bible is not... The Bible is not pretending that that, um, since we're religious people, we can be fooled into thinking that a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife are going to have a child. The Bible says Abraham himself knew it. Abraham himself said uh, said to God, will a man who is 100 years old uh, abraham fell on his face and laughed in genesis seventeen seventeen said will abraham um, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old shall Sarah, who is ninety years old bear a child he 's completely aware of the science this is not normal god and and what i 'm doing here is asking you for some clarification is this what you're saying to me and God says yes that 's what i 'm saying to you and Abraham keeps trucking along in faith with God. The the promises to Abraham sometimes are hard to get our hands on because they show up in so many places dotted throughout the text starting in Genesis 12. There's one of the sections in Genesis 12, there's another promise in Genesis 13, there's another one in chapter 15, there's another one in chapter 17 for the whole chapter, there's another one in chapter 18. And there's more that come on later, um, I think in 21 and 22. So the covenant with Abraham language shows up over and over and over because God comes back and says over and over, hey, Abraham, I'm just checking in with you. I'm still going to do this. You know, the first time that God comes to Abraham, Abraham is around 75 years old. Well, that's already old. I'm going to give you... This land, and you're going to have these descendants. And Abraham gets around to, to later when God comes to him. He says to him in uh, in, in Genesis uh, in Genesis 15. He says to him, sorry, Let's see where I've placed this. In Genesis 15, he says, "O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless." And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. But God narrows down the promise. It's not just that someone from your house will be your descendant. God says in verse 4, Your very own son shall be your heir. Genesis 15, 4. And then Abraham questions God again in verse 8. He says, "O oh Lord, how shall I know that I will possess it? So, when Paul tells us that Abraham had unwavering faith, and when Paul tells us that Abraham believed God continuously, it doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have any tough conversations with God about the question. If you've read the story of Abraham, Abraham has every time he encounters God he, he keeps asking him questions about, well, can we do it this way? Well, are you sure this is going to happen? Do, do you really mean this? Is this what's... Here he said, I I remember that you promised me something but I haven't noticed you doing it yet. I continue childless. childless. You haven't given me anyone yet did you mean or just maybe, maybe what you meant was Eliezer is going to be the heir and I think he's trying to help God out here I think he's trying to say surely this is what you meant and, and maybe it's fulfilled already and God says no your very own son shall be your heir so he goes back to Sarah and said he, he said it's got to be my son and Sarah says huh well, maybe maybe God meant through, through my servant, Hagar. Because, now this is not how we do things, but in their legal system, the servant of a woman, if she bore children, was bear them in the name of the woman. And yes, it's true that Jesus later tells us that people could have known from the beginning they shouldn't have had multiple wives. But during this time of large ignorance about that fact... Uh, Abraham takes Hagar as his second wife. It says that Sarah gave Hagar to him as a wife. And he does have a child by her, a child named Ishmael. And then when God comes back to speak to Abraham again, he says to Abram that I'm going to give you all of these things, this land, your offspring, and I will be God to you and to your children after you. Uh, and Abraham is told, uh, Abraham questions God and says, uh, oh, that Ishmael should live before you. And that before you there is the same before you as we talked about in God's sight or before him. He is saying to, uh, I wish that Ishmael would live under your special blessing he's not saying i wish that ishmael would be a godly person in fact the bible doesn't actually give us any reason to doubt that ishmael was a godly person all it does is says that god blessed him and god will keep his promise to him god will make him a prince of 12 12 nations god would make him uh greatly blessed and in fact when abraham is uh, when abraham is buried he is buried by Isaac and Ishmael together. They're not opposed to each other. They're not fighting. Uh, We see no actual, we we tend to rewrite our current history backwards and say that because we're generally the Christians and the Muslims who are descendants of Ishmael are at odds with each other that Ishmael was um, at odds with Isaac, but the Bible never tells us that uh Ishmael's mother Hagar is visited by God and and they have a regular conversation like she's one of his other one of his other normal worshippers and followers and she says, God, i i I'm on the run here, I'm doing uh I'm I'm questioning what's happening and God says, Don't worry, I will fulfill my promises to you and to your son. Uh, now Ishmael there Is an important part of of Abraham's household. And Abraham is saying. Couldn't we do it this way? Couldn't it be that the promise you're saying is coming to me? I have a son by my own body here. Couldn't it be this one? And Abraham says no. It's going to be through Sarah. And and Abraham questions God. Could a man a hundred years old could a woman 90 years old is that really what you're saying and god says yes and in the next chapter when god in chapter 18 when god comes to speak to abraham and sarah she laughs and in this case it seems the way that god reacts to her it seems that her laughter is scoffing that when she hears that she will about this time a year from now i'm going to come back and visit you and you'll have that child and she's, <laughs> yeah. And he says, why are you mocking what I said? She said, I, I didn't laugh. He says, no, you did. I heard you. You laughed. A gentle rebuke. He doesn't say to Sarah, ah, well, I thought you were going to have unwavering faith. I thought that you were going to have hope against hope. But you, my lady, are no longer in the kingdom. He just tells her to stop her unbelief. Don't do that. I, and, and do you know what, what the verse, this is a, a, a wonderful verse that, that God, um, God says to us in reaction to this in chapter 18, verse 14. This is a verse that you could bank on when you're having any kind of trouble. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? That's the kind of faith that makes Abraham's faith great. Is not because Abraham doesn't question. It's not because Abraham doesn't try to solve the problems on his own. It's not because Abraham doesn't even engage in sin to try to bring it about. Is not because Abraham is a superhero, superhuman believer. It's because Abraham steadfastly believes that God is a God who can defeat any situation. God says to them, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we know that Abraham did trust God. The final story of resurrection, beyond the fact that Abraham was too old, beyond the fact that Sarah was too old, beyond the fact that God had delayed 25 years from this point, from when he first told them, is the story of Abraham and Isaac. I only want to review it for a second. I think I talked about it at length sometime in, in the, um, one of the last times I was here. But I want to point out this, that what was going on there in that story, um, it, it, it's helpful to remember that all of the gods that Abraham lived around, all the people's gods, all the religions that were around, pra- practiced child sacrifice. And Abraham was not raised in a Christian home. right? Abraham's father worshipped idols, the Bible tells us. God called Abraham to restart the engine. People still knew stories from Adam and Eve. People still knew the history that had gone on since Noah. But when Abraham was raised, he was raised in a pagan context. And all the gods demanded, the the demons who masqueraded as gods, demanded child sacrifice. That's one of their favorite things to do. As the centrality of the gospel is about life. The central way that the demons like us to worship him, worship them is through death. And they have paraded out religions of death. And Abraham is raised in that context. And he doesn't have a Bible to be reading about what this God is like. But he's been having conversations with this God who does miracles in front of him, who shows up and then disappears who has uh, given him, at this point, by the time he's had Isaac, he was 100 years old when Isaac was born to his 90-year-old wife. Abraham knows that God is a miracle God. Abraham knows that God is the God. But he doesn't know what his character is like in detail. And so God, when God says to him, all right, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac, Abraham doesn't say, that is completely unethical, God. I cannot believe that you would ask me something so atrocious. There must not be any such thing as the supernatural realm. There must not be miracles. There are no angels and demons. The Bible is, is a, a bunch of um, imaginative thinking. He says, well, sounds about right. Wouldn't that be what they do? They give and they take. All right, I will, now, what though is different about what Abraham actually believes and a cynical view? Abraham didn't go to it cynically. Abraham, the Bible tells us multiple times that Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. It says specifically in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. How do you get that? Is that just imaginative Christian re-reading of the text? No, everything in Genesis is about resurrection. Putting, Isaac, uh, putting Joseph in the pit and bringing him out. Putting him in prison and bringing him out. Telling, uh, telling Adam and Eve they would die today, and then yet they don't because another animal dies in their place. God is all focused on restoring life. God calls Abraham to offer Isaac as an offering that would rise. He literally says in Hebrew, It'll give him up as an offering that will rise. And it is the only way. It is the only way forward if God is to be believed at all. God asks him to take the only, he's, you remember I said that he has narrowed the focus. First Abraham just thought it was gonna be someone in his house and then God says, "No, it's actually got to be your f- literal physical son." Okay, it will be my son, but probably not Sarah's. No, 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 it has to be yours and Sarah's. It's got to be Isaac specifically. And what what is the promise that he says is going to come through Isaac? Is it that Isaac is going to be a great man? No, he says that a multitude of nations will be your descendants such that if you can look to the stars and number the stars, that's how many there will be. That's the verse in Genesis 15 where it says that Abraham believed God and he was count- it was counted to him as righteousness. Is the specific promise that this boy is going to have so many children, you can't count them. And now I want you to sacrifice him. I was talking to my children about this uh, concept of trusting in the character of your parents. If you believe that your parents are good, if you believe that your parents are good and that they love you and that they are wise, your parents may ask you to do something you don't understand, but because they're good and they're wise and they love you, you can just do what they say because your parents will take care of it. It's still going to work out. I, I said, what if, what if your parents had told you, uh, every Friday we have pizza. And you, you know this from, from months and years going through that that's a family celebration. And the 12-year-old boy has gotten to the place of honor where he's, uh, he's able to now be the one who calls in the order. All right, so it work's over. It's 5 o'clock. Call the pizza. You're the one who gets to do it. And this special Friday, you're having friends over and it's gonna be a big bigger celebration. Oh yeah, we're having friends over. Are we still having pizza. Yes we are. Uh well it's Friday now. Hey Dad, is it tonight the night the, the our friends are coming over and we're having the pizza? Yes we are. Hey Dad, it's five o'clock, work's over. Yes, um I I want you to not call in the pizza. Don't call we're not calling the calling pizza for pizza. I want you guys to get all uh, dressed up and go stand out in the front yard. So at this point, the child has a choice of how to react. And the child can say, I thought we were having pizza! Which is probably what's actually going to (laughs) happen. But, under the right conditions, the child may think, My father has promised me this pizza so many times, and even this morning. I shouldn't try to figure this out on my own. I should just do what he says. So the kids get on their clothes and go stand out in the front yard, and he's like, great, just in time, our friends are arriving. We want to welcome them. They got the pizza for us. So there was no reason for you to worry. I didn't say we weren't having pizza. I just said don't call it in. Now, all of my analogies are always about pizza, (laughs) which is okay on a Sunday in Lent because it's a celebratory day, but Isaac is the only option. It's going to be yours. It's going to be your flesh. It's going to be your wife's son. It's going to be Isaac. And Isaac has no children, but he's going to have a million, and he needs to be sacrificed. So Abraham could say, I thought you said it was Isaac. But the Bible tells us that Abraham believed that God was a miracle-working God who gave life to the dead. He had done it for him. He had already given resurrection to Abraham's physical ability to have children. And now here he believes that he can do it again. That's the kind of faith that Abraham has. And it is not a faith that is characterized by perfection as opposed to your kind of faith where you notice that you have bumps in the road. Um, Let's talk about the bumps in the road. Sometimes we doubt, and the Bible uses the word doubt in two different ways. The Bible uses the word doubt to refer sometimes to the, <coughs> sometimes to the feebleness of our strength, where we get afraid. Maybe this isn't going to happen. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried that it's not going to come true. That kind of doubt is, is weakness. And with that kind of doubt, God is, God is generous. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you this. Uh, there's another kind of doubt in which we hedge our bets and decide to worship a different God. And that kind of doubt, God is not patient with. Let me show you. <coughs> Excuse me. In James 1, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is one of those harsh passages in which we we hear that if you doubt at all, you get nothing. All right, well, that, uh, this, this is a huge obstacle, unless we understand it rightly. The same book, the same author, James, says in, in chapter 4, Submit yourselves, therefore, and this is a key, uh, what I'm doing here is I'm showing you there's a path that gives you a key. That unlocks what he's saying and makes it sound completely different. Submit yourselves to God, therefore, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is James 4, 7 and 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the key there. He uses the word double-minded again. So we get a chance to under ask, we get a chance to ask James, what do you mean by the word double-minded? Do you know where the phrase, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, comes from? Cleanse your hands and purify your heart. He's referring to one specific passage in the Old Testament. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? you know where this is? Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? So who gets permission to be a Christian? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The really fun thing is that this, this, the next verse provides the end of a chiasm, the end of a crisscross Hebrew parallelism. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or sworn deceitfully. So the first and the last thing go together and the middle things go together. He who has clean hands, what do the hands do? They swear, he says, he, those who have not sworn falsely to an idol, uh, sworn falsely. And those who have pure hearts who have not lifted up their souls to an idol. So if you line the things up, having a pure heart is the same thing as not worshipping an idol. And having clean hands is not having sworn, not telling lies. So when here he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Purifying your hearts is a reference to not committing idolatry. You know what Jesus promises in the Beatitudes? The pure in heart will see God. What does an idolater want? We have an invisible God. What do idolaters want? They want to see their God. You don't get to see God. That's a false God. The pure in heart, we will get to see God. So that's a, Jesus has thinking along the same terms from the wisdom literature. The pure in heart are non-idolaters. The pure in heart literally get to see a God, and James says that you should purify your hearts. You double-minded. In James, the word double-minded means idolater. So now let's go back and read what his harsh condemnation was. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faithfulness, without doubting. The opposite of faithfulness is being double-minded or an idolater, an unfaithful person. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. That person must not suppose he will receive anything. He is a double-minded man. He is an idolater. So what James is saying is behind door number 1 is God. And you can have if you come to God, you can have all the wisdom given to you by a endlessly generous God. But if you choose to go anywhere else, if you choose to go to God and you say, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to put I'm going to put half my money on God and I'm going to put half my money on Baal. And at least I'll probably come out ahead one way or the other. That's being double-minded. And God has no patience for that. He wants all of your worship. You don't get to So here's here's the bad news. You don't get to be you don't get to participate in any other religions. You don't get to offer sacrifices to any other gods. If you want to have a true faith, the kind like Abraham's, you are limited to worshiping Jesus alone. Well, that's not as hard. Maybe you might have weakness, weakness in your faith, but you can limit yourself to worshiping one God. Do you know what James' brother Jude says in the next book? In Jude 22... It's only one chapter, so it has no chapters. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. That's the other kind of doubt. That's the weakness kind of doubt, not the bet hedging idolatry. Jude tells us that God's character is kind with people who are weak. We know that from Jesus, don't we? Jesus was harsh with the Pharisees who knew better. And he was kind with all the the people that came to him in need. Those who came to him even saying, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. So Paul is not telling us you can only have the promise if you don't ever flinch or fail in, in wondering about God. Don't don't ever bring up the possibility that God's not doing what you said, because then you'll get nothing. If you have been trained to pray according to the Psalms, which I know that you do here, if you're trained to pray according to the Psalms, the Psalms themselves teach you to question God, and then they teach you to end your question with, I worship you. Lord, you, you have made us a byword amongst the nations. You've made us a laughingstock, the Psalms teach us to say to God. We are, we, our bellies cling to the ground. We are down in the dirt. Where are you? Are you sleeping, O oh God? Do you know that the Psalms tell you to pray things like, Lord, are you sleeping? That is a faith that the Holy Spirit has prescribed which is consistent with being an unwavering faith. It is not a non-questioning faith. It is not a faith that doesn't beg God to keep reassuring you. Like Abraham said, how do I know? Can you give me some reassurance that this is going to happen? The Psalms teach us to pray that way as well. So Abraham's faith is had by a man who is a sinner. And Abraham's faith is had by a man who needs clarifications. And Abraham's faith is had by a man who needs reassurance. But Abraham's faith is had by a man who believes the God he believes in is a miracle worker who can do anything. And nothing is too hard for him. He gives life to the dead. And he can call into existence even things that do not exist. When you find yourself when you find yourself having prayed for the same person's salvation for 20 years some friend or family member when you uh, and, and I find myself in this position I have friends I've been praying for for 25 years and I sometimes I forget to pray. I've, if I fall off and I come back as, oh, man, I think it's been a couple years since I prayed for these guys. I just got so used to their hardness of heart. But I believe the Bible says something that is whatever we ask of God, he'll do for us. And I don't know how he will apply that. I don't know for certain that I understand that fully. But I do believe that God will do what I ask because he said he will do what I ask. And I have to let the answer to that be God's. But the way you respond to it is you keep praying. The way you respond to it, the way you respond to it is you communicate the truth of the gospel. And then you let go of it. You tell the person that you want to talk to, you know Jesus was raised from the dead. You know he forgives sins. You know there's no no barrier between you and him that he cannot overcome but you can't let it be on you. You can't do the saving. That has to be on God. And God is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. So keep on. Keep on the prayers. And when you have doubts, keep coming to church. When you have doubts, turn to God and and ask him for help rather than turning away from him in anger. Don't seek out idols. There is no one else who can help you. But God has a habit of delaying. God has a habit of delaying till the last minute so that he can have everyone's attention when he does the miracle. And that's a thing that you need to to put your trust in because God is a merciful, good Father who does respond to our prayers. Uh, let Let's pray to God, um, the God of Abraham. God, sometimes it's so tricky for us to to navigate our lives. When we know what is true, we know that you should uh, we should find you truthful, we should try find you powerful, we should worship you as such. And we are weak. God, we thank, you that we thank You that the power of Your promise is not negated by the weakness of our flesh. We thank You that the calling that You have upon us is not taken away because we ask You to repeat Yourself. We thank You that every week we come to You and you have seen fit to repeat the promise of our salvation in, our, in receiving the, the Lord's Supper, that every week you say, yes, I still do. Yes, I still do love you. Yes, I still cover your sins. Father, I pray, though, for anyone here whose heart is troubling him or her about whether you exist or about whether you will forgive our sins individually, or whether you are present working in our life and, and listening to our prayers, I pray that you will be merciful and that you will give reassurances and that you will give clarifications and that you will give demonstrations of your power. And for anyone here who is hurting because they are longing to see others that we love come to know Jesus. I pray that you will work around us, in us, through us, or at least just allow us to see it. Allow us to see these people be strengthened in their faith and come to know Jesus who works miracles. Please, Father, bless yourself in our eyes. And we thank you for considering us your children who will receive your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.